Um, and I'll never forget this. And he, he had these business cards. On the back of one of his business cards, he wrote, The way to be nothing is to do nothing. And he stuck it on my bedroom door um, with a little bit of a scotch tape. And I had that card in my wallet until about eight years ago when I left my wallet in the back of a taxi in Hong Kong. Welcome to The Ziggler Show, where we inspire your true performance. I'm your host, Kevin Miller. Today, I bring you a message that fits pretty much everybody listening, the entrepreneurs and all those who would like to be or to do an entrepreneurial endeavor of some type. Well, Chris Ducker, really well-known guy in the business world. He's our guest. He does not bring yet another how to do entrepreneurship so much as how to be entrepreneurship. Really intriguing. I love the angle he comes at here and just the authenticity. His new book is called Rise of the Upreneur, which has been the name of his podcast for a long time. It's some of his courses, uh, but it's called the definitive guide to becoming the go-to leader in your industry and building a future proof business. And it really talks a lot about you, who you are. That's the, that's the crux here. That's the impetus for everything you're doing. I think it'll be a breath of fresh air for everybody who hears this message. Uh, we spent a lot of time to begin with really on Chris's personal story. What took him from zero to hero? What inspired his true performance and how is he continuing to do so? What's the evolution? The guy's had some, some valleys as well as some mountains. And from hearing that, how can we all do better. That's our point here. A quick bit on Chris. If you don't know him, he's a serial entrepreneur, author of the bestseller Virtual Freedom, and then of course this recent book, Rise of the Upreneur. He's based in Cambridge, England. He owns and operates several businesses that combine uh, 450 full-time employees international. He's also a trusted international business mentor, keynote speaker, podcaster, blogger, as well as the founder of Upreneur.com, the leading personal brand business education company in the world. He hosts the annual Upreneur Summit, Summit, which is held in London, UK, each November, and is the self-proclaimed proudest Brit doing business online. I just had a great time. And as you'll hear in the show, we're going to meet up in San Diego in just over a week at the social media marketing world conference where he's speaking. Look, you can connect with him, but get this book. It is just coming out. Uh, youpreneur.com slash book you printer p-r-e-n-e-u-r.com slash book do yourself a favor go get the book he's got some packages there so for the price of the book you get a lot uh to, to go with it so uh you are going to enjoy this so here we go with chris ducker well, Chris, it is an absolute uh, gift to have you on the show. I know you are a Ziggler fan and, uh, and that my parents are a fan of yours. So couldn't be better company. Thanks for being with us today. It is all my honor and pleasure. I, I'm, I am a very, very big Zig Ziglar fan, so it's, uh, it's great to be here. Well, I appreciate it. We just saw, for those of you, you're not seeing the video like I am, but I just got to see his antique copy of See You at the Top uh, with better, uh, it's a little more mystical because it was found in a bookshop somewhere in the UK. 
It was. Right. It was actually picked up in Notting Hill. I, I mean, it, it couldn't be any more British, yeah, I don't think, as a as an imported book <laughs> uh, from from the United States. It's great. I love it. I think it. I paid four pounds for it in England. There you go. Four <laughs> pounds. There you go. Well, you know, Chris, so, so in this, we want to dig into, you know, the Ziegler tagline is inspiring your true performance. I want to know what has inspired your true performance and to get into your personal journey. What has made Chris... Uh, the Chris that is there today, literally going back. I mean, if you look, as you look at your, so many of us, we, as we talk about people's personal development, often your upbringing has such a big part of who you are today or who you uh, striven to be. So your upbringing, how did it influence your path to where you are today? I mean, you know, we, we were not a, um, as a family, we were not a, a wealthy family. We were definitely a working class family, the Duckers. Uh, my dad was an architect. He had a very, very good job um, with a large architectural firm in, in the city of London. Um, spent most of the 80s actually over in, um, over in, the, in, in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Riyadh. Jeddah, uh, as did a lot of architects. You know, there was a lot of building and, and construction and whatnot going on around the, that time. So in the 80s, it was really all about my mum. Mm. And, you know, my dad was probably gone about, I would have thought, about eight years or so um, in, terms of in, in terms of total time away uh, in the 80s. My mum, you know, she was a, uh, uh, a good old-fashioned old shorthand secretary. Mm. Uh, she then, later on in life, she actually did very well as an interior designer with a firm uh, that was run by a lady named Laura Ashley, who's now very, very famous in the mm. textiles and design world. Um, but, yeah, I mean, just a working-class family, you know, God-fearing, Catholic upbringing, um, very serious, very strict on uh, education and making sure that we got all our homework done before we watched our cartoons every day after school. And, and generally, you know, generally speaking, just, just a very simple, um, a very, a very, just a very simple, strict upbringing as a kid, ultimately, yeah. um, as a teenager, you know, you, you, you you tend to sort of you know test the limits a little bit, don't you? You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> test test the limits of your parents. That's what you do as a teenager, and and I did, and uh, you know, with my brother as well. I've, I have one brother, so um, you know, t- teenager not not getting into any like big trouble or anything like that, but you know, you tend to um, you know push the limits a little bit, and so you know, though this is where actually my Zig story begins as as a teenager, uh, where I, uh, I I I I stole an uh. audio cassette from the local library in Wimbledon, where we lived. Um, well, actually, I mean, look, this in my defence, as I tell this story, I have to say, in my defence here, I had a library card. I was able to take books out of the library. Unfortunately, because I was a, a few months shy of my sixteenth birthday. I could not take out audio cassettes. You have to ah. be 16 or over for audio cassettes. And that was actually when I discovered Zig for the first time. I'm, I'm going to use that Zig. as an ad. He was so hungry for the message <laughs> of hope and inspiration that he resorted to common thievery. I mean, there's, there's, yeah. there's, there's redemption in that, isn't there? I know. Oh, there is. Indeed, there is. And so I, I, I remember seeing you, see you at the top, audio cassette, see you at the top. And um, 
I just remember the part of the tagline. I can't, I mean, I've got the book in front of me, but I, the, the part that really got to me was um, it'll give you a checkup from the neck up. Mm-hmm. That was the, the part of the subtitle. I was like, I kind of feel like I need this right now. Like I wasn't doing all that great at school. And um, I, I was in the middle of taking what we call our mock exams in the UK mm-hmm. for my GCSEs, which is kind of a bit like your, I think it's the same as your kind of high school SATs over in the US. Yeah. Um, and long story short, uh, I, I, I did. I, I lifted with my sticky fingers uh, the cassette tape, <laughs> put it into my jacket, walked out the library um, and took it home. And um, I was playing it up in my bedroom. And I've always been a big music fan. So I had a good stereo system that I'd saved up and saved up. I used to stack shelves on a Saturday at the local supermarket. Then on a Sunday, I would work in the bicycle store around the corner from where I lived and, you know, fixing flat tires and, you know, all that sort of type of thing. So I, I, I was making money as a 15-year-old and I would save the money up and I bought myself a good stereo system, you know, record player and a, a double cassette. T- I mean, it was a, it was a very, very oh, yeah. big thing for me to have that, you know, at that point in my life. And then, so I take the cassette home, I stick it in and I turn up the volume a little bit and the, 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 the door to my bedroom is slightly ajar. And my mum's, as my mum's coming up the stairs, she just hears Zig's voice. Now, you have to understand, you don't hear American men's voices coming from your child's bedroom. <laughs> and, and, and Southern, Southern at that. Yeah. Southern, right, yeah. exactly. So she's coming up the stairs and she hears, you know, this kind of this this booming voice of you're gonna have anything in life you want <laughs> and then she kind of bursts open the door she, what's going on in here <laughs> oh dear and uh that was when i introduced my mum to zig and yeah. then she kind of as like any good catholic irish mother she got it out of me slowly but surely that i had stolen the tape from the library and then decided to literally by the skin of my ear drag me the half a mile walk down to the library and walked in and said this is christopher ducker he stole this cassette from this establishment you must punish him and that was that's that was my mom that's what she did <laughs> that is i mean how often you're supposed to be stealing heavy metal cassette tapes back then or something not uh, right personal development. Right. I, I love it. It reminds me of my dad, Dan Miller, and he's, he's squirreling away in his little Amish home to listen to Earl Nightingale's, uh, the, the strangest secret because you don't listen yeah. to that kind of stuff. That's well, you yeah, So, so in that though, my, it's interesting that you talk about that, that you went for that and you thought, gosh, I, you know, I'm not doing well in school. I need something. That's not normal. You know, you're a teenager. You're supposed to be yeah, re- rebelling and, and getting into things you shouldn't. Where right. were you first aware that, you had desire that you wanted to progress with your life, that you wanted something different than the, the average, than the norm. When was there a spark? I, something I, happened? I think very honestly, I genuinely do believe it was that audio cassette. I think that's what kicked the whole thing off for me. Wow. Um, because I mean, I, you know, when you're, when you're 15, almost 16, a few months away from your 16th birthday, when you, I mean, all I really cared about at that point was, you know, basketball, girls, and skateboarding. Like, I'm not your typical Brit who's into football, or as you guys call it, soccer right. over in the US. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a big football fan at all. I'm a, I'm a hoops guy. I'm an NBA fan. I'm a huge Boston Celtics fan. 
So, you know, that that was kind of all I really cared about at that point. It, it was. It was it was hoops, it was girls, and it was skateboarding in that order. And so, you know, I I, I kind of like I said, I wasn't doing too well at school. Um, and it was actually the combination of Zig kind of giving me that checkup from the neck up, wow. quite frankly. My dad's coming back from another trip, seeing that I wasn't doing too great in my mock exams, knowing I only had about eight or nine months until my real exams were being sat. Um, and I'll never forget this. And he, he had these business cards. On the back of one of his business cards, he wrote, the way to be nothing is to do nothing. And he stuck it on my bedroom door um, with a little bit of a scotch tape. And I had that card in my wallet until about eight years ago when I left my wallet in the back of a taxi in Hong Kong. Wow. I was more upset about losing that business card than I was my credit cards, driving licenses, or or anything else that was that was in that wallet. So it was it was probably a combination of that tape and my dad really kicking me up the butt, quite frankly, before my exams had actually allowed me to understand and figure out where I was going wrong. And um, I did. I mean, I kind of I quit the girls and the skateboarding, couldn't quit playing basketball, but I quit the girls and the skateboarding for that for that next six months and really knuckled down on on the study. And I passed all but one wow. of my exams uh, which i wasn't too worried about it was craft design and technology cdt wow. that i failed with a d wow. but with everything else i got a c and above i even got a few b's much to the surprise of my mom as well which was great um and one of them actually i i got a b in english language and english literature so i i became quite aware of the fact that i enjoyed reading yeah. i enjoyed learning through the art of the spoken or or, or the written word and i enjoyed also writing as well and i think that that was kind of the realization that i was a bit of a a bit of not a wordsmith per se but i like to play on the words and everything and i'm almost sure that all of this kind of combined and you fast forward a, a couple of years later where i decide not to go to university but go straight into employment um and uh, start my sales career and i started as a as a telemarketer working for a company um, that would sell classified ads in sort of an auto trader sort of type uh-huh. of publication. And never forget my day, at, my first day at work, you know, I was expecting lots of training. You know, I was very green behind the ears. I had no idea what I was doing from a sales perspective. My first ever sales job, all I'd ever done at this point was stacking shelves and fixing flat tires for people for work. And um, I'll never forget the sales guy, the, the manager came in and he literally put me at a desk. There was a, a telephone on the desk. There was an, a, an old spiral bound notepad that was half used, a pen. And uh, I said to him, so what do I do? He said, well, here you go. And he gave me a copy of the yellow pages. And he said, start at the beginning wow. and go through to the end. By the time you reach the middle, you'll be half decent. When you reach the end, go back to the beginning and do the first half of the book again. And that was my sales training. Literally, wow. that was my sales training. And I was, I was quite frankly terrible to begin with. And, uh, but after about a week or so of being absolutely appalling at what I was doing, I started to genuinely listen to the other guys that were in the office selling, some of them who had been doing it for a long, long time. And uh, that was kind of what kind of inspired me to sit down and write my first sales script, right, per right. se, which I did one evening at home based on everything that I had learned. Went back in and uh, 
closed my my first sale just after lunchtime that next day. And man, I've never looked back. That, okay, so so now. start. There's a good good segue. So you know, again, there. Where do you uh, from that from that point there, and maybe even before that? What has been a primary driver or drivers of your motivation, your desire to go after? something, as you said, you didn't, you know, you, you, you didn't go to college. You went right in. I mean, you obviously had some drive, some motivation. Where did that, where was the spark for that? What, or, or, or what was the muse? Well, I think, <clears throat> I, I think that because we were quite working class and we didn't have a lot of money, um, I, you know, there were several things growing up as a kid that, you know, like any other kid, you know, you want the nice pair of sneakers mm-hmm. or you want, you know, to go to the movies twice a month instead of you know once a quarter and he wants to do all that we didn't have a lot of money and i always remember saying to myself you know when i when i'm when i'm a dad i'm gonna i'm gonna have lots of money you know like i'm i'm, I'm not gonna let my kids want for anything like they're gonna have to earn what they get but I'm, I'm i'm not gonna get to the point where i can only take my kids to the pictures three or four times a year like i want to go i'm a big movie fan i want to go to the movies every weekend you know what I mean? Yep. So I, I think honestly, it you know, although it might sound a little, um, it might sound a little selfish in regards to the whole kind of monetary aspect of it. But I think the driving factor was not, you know, being, you know, in the same situation. You know, when I got older, I think I wanted to be better off. I wanted to. I didn't want to be a multi-billionaire or anything like that. I still don't, quite frankly. I'm quite comfortable being exactly where I am right now. Um, but I, I definitely, the inspiration was, was definitely between, you know, having that loving, caring, God fearing environment that I grew up in, but then also understanding that, you know, from, from a financial perspective, um, you know, I, I wanted more. Mm-hmm. I just wanted more. I think that there's no silver bullet here, Kevin, you know, I, I just wanted I wanted to have more. And when, you know, you look through things, family, check, great. You know, um, I was playing hoops, very healthy kid, still a healthy adult. Um, you know, spiritually, we were taken care of thanks to my mum. Uh, you know, she was definitely the guiding light on that side of things. Uh, so on and so on and so on. But financially, I definitely wanted more. And I saw sales as a great place for me to be able to start. I didn't necessarily think that I'd be a sales guy. And I still identify with the role as a sales professional to this day. I believe that, I mean, even though I call myself an entrepreneur now, I've got several businesses and, you know, almost 500 employees, et cetera, et cetera. I still identify as a sales professional because I believe that if you are, an entrepreneur, you're selling something. Everyone's selling something, whether it be a product, a service, or an experience, right? Um, and I think I realized very early on in that first sales job on the telephone that um, people don't want to, you know, they don't necessarily want to buy. They don't want to be sold to. Um, but once you actually provide a solution to a problem that they're having, they will love to buy what you've got. So it wasn't, I, I learned pretty quickly that actually 
selling something to someone wasn't going to get me anywhere, but providing a solution to a problem was really the solution to my problem of not being able to close a sale. And it was all about relationships. It was all about building up that rapport and that trust and, and the whole kind of idea of, you know, um, you know, get, getting to know, like, and trust someone. I've put that to one side now. I, I think here we are in 2018 and beyond. It's no love and trust. I, th- I don't think like is enough anymore. I think love is, is, you know, you've got to be somebody's favorite nowadays. That's the way I look at it. Our role, particularly in this day and age, in the way that we build our businesses based around content mm-hmm. um, and providing those very kind of content-driven solutions a lot of the times from a, a product or a service perspective, I really believe that actually our role is to become somebody's favorite. Somebody's favorite coach somebody's favorite mentor somebody's favorite podcaster somebody's favorite whatever and so looking back um you know that 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 very (laughs) a very kind of cold humble beginning as a sales guy um you know was was a real uh a real difference maker for me as as a young guy was what 18 and uh, i didn't quite know what i wanted in the world but i did know that i loved people that i loved talking to people and pretty quickly, it was quite obvious that if I wanted to just solve their problems in some way, shape, or form, that I would do pretty well. And within two years, I was outselling pretty much everybody, people twice my age, quite frankly. It didn't take me long to kind of hit a groove and to figure out exactly how to do this thing. And uh, to this day, I, I love sales to this day. I think it's, it's the, I mean, my dad used to say, if you're a good sales guy, you will always have a job because everyone's selling something. And he's absolutely right. And I still, to this day, I still, like I said, identify myself as a sales professional. That's exactly who I am. And Zig just gave you a big high five from heaven above. And thanks to these sponsors for bringing us today's show. So, so in this, looking at this, you know, this drive and this pursuit and figuring things out, what's the evolution of that as you have seen what motivates you? I mean, obviously we all, as Zig talked about too, you know, money isn't everything, but it's, it's really close to oxygen. You know, it's, it's important. So you got that though. I mean, you, you have made money, you're making money. What has been the evolution of, of that, of what drives and motivates you to do what you do? Well, nowadays it's my kids. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I've got four children. Um, the oldest is 22. The youngest is four months. Oh, so oh yeah, yeah. I'm I'm a I'm a career father. A parent, <laughs> uh, okay, I I uh, I can att- I've got twenty. I've got twenty two down to uh, to five. But man, you've got me beat. I got uh, you beat. But but so how many kids do you have though? I had nine total. I got nine total. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, no, you've got me beat. I'm sorry. I'm going to throw this baton back to you. Nine is incredible. I don't know, I thought, man. I'm done I with mean, babies. I'm I'm done. <laughs> uh, and you're back in the saddle. Holy smokes. Uh, okay. No, okay. So I kids. Know. So kids are the motivation. And and is it kids the is, is it is it the example, the legacy to them? That's, yeah, that's for me, for me now, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> excuse me, a, lo- a lot of, a lot of, you know, I do a lot of podcast interviews and whatnot. And a lot of people ask that relatively bland question, you know, nowadays where, and this is what, you know, I'm not going to go into a, a grind my gears moment here or anything like that. But I mean, 
if you're a podcaster, please come up with your own questions like Kevin is right now. Don't copy other people's questions. You know, let's go to the lightning round. You know, you, you're not only John Lee Dumas can take you into the lightning round. You know what I mean? He, he, wrote, um, he wrote that thing. Absolutely. He wrote that one. Right. So yeah. no, but, but I, I think, you know, one of the things I get asked a lot is about legacy. You know, what do you, what do you want your legacy to be? You know, and it's a bit of a bland question, but that for me, is is everything for me now as a mid-40s guy who's built several successful businesses who is blessed very very solidly blessed uh from the heavens above to have an incredibly loyal hard-working action-taking orientated community around the world um i i think you know, legacy is everything, but my kids are even more important than that. And so when people ask me that question, what do you want your legacy to be? I have just a very simple answer. And my simple answer is I've done pretty good. My legacy is going to be my kids doing better than me. Amen. Beautiful. That's it. And so it's, it's really that simple. And so I, I, I take it very, I take being a dad very, 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 very seriously. I mean, to the point where, you know, my my youngest now, Charles, he comes back from school. He gets in at about four o'clock. Um, what I didn't have the opportunity um, to do with my first uh, two kids, my older kids, was be there when they got back from school. I mm. can with Charles and with Cassandra now. And so... I only work a four-day week. I work Monday through to Thursday. I don't work a Friday. I haven't done uh, since 2014, so four years now, Um, except for maybe the odd Friday here and there when I'm traveling or speaking or launching or something like that. But um, across the board, I don't work Fridays. That's That's me and my wife's day, which has now been interrupted by Cassandra, almost four months old, Um, But because obviously Charles is at school. Um, But... um, you know, when he comes back from school every day, he, he gets back at around 4.15 here to the house every day. I'm done. I'm done just before 4 o'clock. The work is wrapped up. I work at the third floor of my house. It's the only floor in the entire house. I go down to the living room, and I'm right there mm-hmm. sitting and waiting for reading time. We do 30 minutes of reading with each other every single day, even on the weekends. Um, and I, I honestly, at one point, I was like, I don't care what he's reading. I just want him to read words, plain and simple. But over the last year or so, as his reading has become very, very proficient, and we've been doing this for about three years now, so this is not a new thing. Um, Now I want him to start reading. You know, now I'm now I'm buying the books for him. You know, I'm I'm pushing him to read the bigger books, and he's doing a Secret Seven series right now from Enid Blyton, and he's thoroughly enjoying that. Um, And we've you know we've done a whole bunch of other stuff, but but that that's just. One thing right there is the re- you know the reading the importance of reading and and getting your kids kind of fired up for that side of it. He actually looks forward to it. Yeah. He can't wait for it. So he reads his book and then he plays with his dog for fifteen minutes <clears throat> and then he can watch cartoons for half an hour before dinner. You know right, what I mean? Right. So you know it's just you know, it's little things like that. I think as a father, you'll get it. Any father tuning in will get that kind of thing. Uh, but it yeah. goes beyond that for me as well. You know, in this very connected time where we've all got these smartphones and laptops and iPads and all this sort of stuff. I refuse to let my kid be the one at the restaurant with the phone or the iPad. It's just not going to happen. So, you know, when we eat, there's no electronics anywhere near the table. 
uh, we, you know, we say grace, we dig in, we get done, we have conversations. Thank you for playing. And uh, I'm a big believer that you've got to try and be as present as possible. So that's my driving factor, Kevin. You know, and in a roundabout way, it really genuinely is my children. And even though we've been living here in the Philippines for the last 17 years, we're moving back to England mm. in just a few months from now as a family. <clears throat> we bought this gorgeous period grade two listed property in Cambridgeshire. Uh, we're going back and, you know, that, that will begin a whole different era for education for my children in terms of all the museums and experiences and everything else yeah. that we have over there as well. We, we had a full blown, uh, a full blown seven year old meltdown in the lobby of the science museum in London a couple of years ago that I'll never forget because he didn't want to leave. He was enjoying the museum. So much. that's beautiful. That's yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Okay. So, so we get, we get the motive from early on and, and now I hear it here. Obviously you're, you're a fairly driven or very driven, motivated guy. As you've gone along, has there been a time, a time period, an, an event sometime when you have struggled with it, when you lost your mojo, uh, tell us about it. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of times. So, um, so I lost, I lost my mom, um, mm. in 1999 and then a couple of years later, lost my dad oh, to wow. an accident. My mom went via a, a third heart attack, uh, after, um, uh, she had, a a quadruple bypass. So she kind of doubled what life expectancy the doctors gave her after that quadruple bypass. She was an older mum. She had me in her early forties. And so, um, I, I, that was tough. Losing my mum was, was very, very, very tough because I was extremely close to my mother, very, very close to my mother for a couple of reasons. Number one, she really was genuinely the guiding light for me. As a, as a youngster um, in regards to my relationship with God. And so that was a very important thing for me. And that relationship that she and I had was very, very strong. My brother is maybe not so, not so, you know, he's not very religious anymore. And he kind of, you know, went his own path sort of thing in regards to that. But I still am. And it's still qualities that, you know, I obviously now, kind of pass on to my family it's important for me so losing my mom was very very hard although I, I don't think I lost my mojo from it um but a couple of years later when my dad passed from an accident unfortunately he fell down the stairs oh. um and and died as a result of a head injury that for me was really hard because then I realized holy crap both my parents have gone and I'm not even 30 yet like, this is a messed up situation. That hit me hard. Mm. And I mean, I actually, to the point where I had to take time off work and, you know, I really had to kind of regroup a little bit on that. But neither of those come close to requiring a six-hour spinal surgery operation um, in 2012. Uh, I, had, I, had, I had hit burnout at the end of 2009 as an entrepreneur, like a lot of entrepreneurs do, you know, I was working 16 hours a day, you know, building this business up thinking that I was wearing a, a Superman cape and that I could do everything. Wasn't the case. Hit burnout, was in the hospital, was on fluids, 
was treated for basically exhaustion and depression uh, and bounced back and actually did very well. And that was the incubus for my first book, Virtual Freedom, in terms of building a virtual team and delegating and all the rest of it. And that's genuinely what I did. At that point, I had 150 people working for me, but only then started delegating properly. And so actually, I kind of look at my burnout and say, that was required. I needed that to learn how to actually run a business properly and not try and do everything myself. But fast forward a couple of years, unfortunately, the damage on my lower spine had already been done by sitting down for those 15, 16 hour days for three, four years as I built the business. Uh, And um, I picked up my son, Charles at the time was probably what, three years old or whatever. Um, and I picked him up and sort of he'd like to do the Superman thing. And as I'm flying him around the living room, I felt this click in my back yeah. and I literally dropped to my knees in pain. Um, and I had fundamentally blown my L5S1 disc. It had completely herniated from out between the two vertebrae. Yeah and was macheteing its way, that's <laughs> the only word to use, macheteing its way into my sciatic nerve. And I felt this, this pain of, of just like it was as if somebody was running a knife tip down the hole of my right leg, right the way down to my big toe. And I was rushed to hospital um, wow. and uh, was put on morphine. And they did an MRI and they realized that you know it was pretty much done i was going to have to have the operation but the damage had already been done it wasn't the fact that i was picking up my son that did it right. it was the it was it was compressing that disc for all those years of sitting down so now i actually although i'm sat for this interview i now i'm actually standing up for 85% of my work day. Yeah. I think you're standing up right now. Am I, I, I right? I, I got two. I'm, I have two standing desks here in my office. I go there back go. and forth. Yeah. Yeah. So I, this, this desk actually goes up and down. It's yeah. one of those sexy kind of desks. I, I got one of those too. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it, you know, that was for me the hardest moment of my life as wow. a entrepreneur, as a father, as a husband, as a man, you know, as a professional, that was the toughest time for me because, after the surgery, I mean, it took me a good month until I was back on my feet properly. Yeah. And even then, I was in physiotherapy for another three, four months after that. Um, I refused after about two weeks or so, I refused pain medication because honestly, I felt like I was becoming addicted to it, mm. quite frankly, because it numbs. I mean, the, it was hardcore pain meds I was taking. It numbed everything. It didn't just numb the pain but it numbed the depression I was quite frankly going through. It numbed everything around me because all I wanted to do after taking those meds was slip into a slumber. Mm. And so I felt myself slowly dipping into that addiction mode after probably including the time before the operation, probably three, four weeks of being on these, these pretty hardcore pain medications. I felt like, I mean, when you're saying to yourself, what's the time or oh, how much longer until I can take that, that, mm pill again that's a problem yeah. you know what i mean and so i cut myself off two three weeks before i was supposed to so then i was now dealing with the pain that yeah. lingering pain of the operation and everything but i'm so happy that i did what i needed to do because it actually took me out of that depression mode and took me out of that sleeping all day all night and i reconnected with my wife and you know there were several several occasions where i was in pain where she would sit on the edge of the bed with me and we would pray together and we would talk together and we would drink wine together. Once the sun went down and we would do all these things that she did her 
best, man. She did her best to get me through that challenge. And after about six to eight weeks or so, I came out of it. I started getting up again. I started swimming. I started yoga. I started meditating. I started doing all these things that a lot of the, a lot of the things I did I'd never done before in my life. Men from England don't do yoga. <laughs> There's a statement. That's a t-shirt. <laughs> I mean, that's a t-shirt. I think. You know. Yeah. Right. We. Yeah. It probably is. You're right. <laughs> We don't do yoga. I mean, not for my generation anyway. Maybe yeah. the millennial crowd might. So, you know, it, it, was, it was a big realization, actually, that it's kind of like a, uh, like a, a moment, kind of, you know, like one of those moments where it's, it's like the beginning of the second part of your life almost, yeah. having that back surgery. And I've become more active. I'm more healthier. I'm eating healthier. I'm definitely stronger than I ever have been here in my mid-40s. Um, because of the fact that I'm exercising and I'm taking better care of myself, quite frankly. And for the record, I don't like exercising. I'm your typical guy that genuinely does not like to exercise, but I do it because I know it's good for me and it'll mean I'm around for a long, long time for my kids. Absolutely. Biggest motivator I have for it is right, is right there. So, so there's a, a hard point in your story is there a, as you look back, was there any significant or tangible big break that you got that you look back and go, man, that, that was, that was a big break. That was a, call it luck, call it divine. Uh, anything that you look back and go, man, that was good. A big break in terms of like an opportunity. Is yeah. that what you're saying? Yeah. Or, uh, or even a realization, something that from that point on, you got a big uptick in your progress. Yeah, I think probably, realistically, it was probably the first book. It was Virtual Freedom. Mm. Um, so I, I was contacted by a publisher in late in December 2012. It had always, always been uh, a goal to write a book of mine. I mean, I'm a big reader. I still do two or three books a month to this day. Um, I, I mean, there's hundreds of books in this office here. And I... I I always wanted to write a book, but I didn't feel like I had anything in me that was worth, that warranted writing a book. Like mm -hmm. who's going to want to read a book about sales, for example, from Chris Ducker. Yes, I've had a 20 year sales career, but you know, there's enough sales books out there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, the world doesn't need another sales book per se, particularly one for me. So I won't do that. Um, and it was really, it was the burnout late 2009, recovering from that 2010, really building my team, a virtual team at that. And I started blogging. I started podcasting. I was speaking already. And I was creating this content on a daily basis almost to help people do likewise. And then I realized, holy moly, I've got 10,000 people on my email list going into you know the middle, of two, middle to late 2012. I've got all these people downloading my show Tens of thousands of people are reading my blog every week. This is incredible. Like I have a genuine following. And so I asked them, if I was to write a book, what would you want me to write it about? And it was a resounding 80 plus percent of people reading my blog, listening to my show. We want to know how to build a team of virtual assistants. Wow. That's what we want to know okay. how to do. And so, you know, I, I built a company up, Virtual Starfinder, which helps busy entrepreneurs find VAs here in the Philippines. And um, that was exactly what I did. But, but I, although in my head, I was thinking, uh, maybe the time is now coming for me to write this book. I hadn't started writing it. Like I said, December 2012, publisher reaches out. 
from the US and they're like, we'd like to write a book with you. Um, we are not going to pay you to do it, but blah, 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 blah. So it was a terrible offer, quite frankly. Okay. Um, but it did, it instilled something in, inside me, maybe now is the time. And so actually I got an agent. She helped me put together a proposal. Um, we shipped that proposal to 16 publishers. We got four good offers on the book going into early 2013. Um, and I started writing Virtual Freedom. And uh, we went actually not with the not with the best advance um, out of all of the offers that we had. But I remember very clearly I had the uh, conversation with the owner of the firm. It was a company called Ben Bella Books out of Denver. Uh, sorry, Dallas, rather. And um, I remember the conversation like it was yesterday with the owner of the business on the phone. He said to me, you know, I see this book being the outsourcing section of the four-hour work week ah, on steroids. Beautiful. And I was like, this is the guy, because clearly he gets it. And that's wow. exactly what the book turned out to be. We fast forward now, I think we're at about 60-plus thousand copies sold, 800-plus five-star reviews on Amazon, uh, and uh, a very, very successful book. And so I think that was the turning point. I mean, within three, four months of that book coming out, we – quadrupled the revenue of Virtual Starfinder. We doubled the size of the team. Um, and I knew very clearly from the sales numbers, from my royalty numbers, that I was, I, was, I was hitting this audience that was more intent in learning how to find freedom in their life and their business, to grow their business, et cetera, et cetera, than I, had even, I, I hadn't even imagined. The keynote presentation office started coming in left, right, and center. I went on the road later that year all over the world. I did, I think, 16 dates in, I'm going to say, six different countries, God knows how many cities, probably well over 15,000 people all in on that tour. Yeah. I was away for seven weeks, um, and uh, I loved every single second of it. Um, and you know, like there's always with authors, there's always that one piece of feedback that makes it all worthwhile. Can I tell you this story? Mm -hmm. I think you'll appreciate it, um, particularly being a father. I was in New York and had just finished a keynote presentation, and I was doing a book signing, and there was a big long line. Um, part of my part of my gig deal with the event was that uh, the 800 people in attendance got a free copy of the book. Oh. So there was 800 copies of Virtual Freedom floating around. Um, there was probably a line of maybe, I don't know, 200 people. And slowly but surely, I worked my way through this line. And I'm one of those authors that just love signing his books. I can't get enough of it. Um, and I'm signing these books. I'm chatting with everybody. And it's taking me probably longer than it should do. Uh, but eventually, I get to the very end of the line. And this guy comes up to me with tears in his eyes. And I say to him, you know, are you okay, man? Like, you know, do you need me to get you something or something? And he said, no, I just, uh, I need you to know that um, I picked up your book about five months ago on Kindle and it's changed my life. Now, you actually hear those words quite a bit. I think it's a standard go-to sentence for anybody that's enjoyed a book like Virtual Freedom, where you're kind of helping people reshape certain parts of their lives. 
And I've heard it quite a few times. And don't get me wrong, I don't take it for granted. I love it. You've, you know, your book changed my life. That's a big statement mm-hmm. to make. And as an author, it's a lovely one to get. But there was something about this guy and the fact that he was a grown man crying in front of me that I'd never met before. I wanted to know why. And I said, really? In what way? How has it changed your life? And I had discovered that about a year prior, his wife had died of cancer. Mm. Very young wife young daughter, three and a half, four years old, I believe at the time. And he was struggling to run his business and also be a full-time, you know, single dad. Mm. And, uh, his, he picked up the book and he learned how to hire virtual employees to do several things that he needed to get done every day as he, you know, ran and grew his business and everything. And he said, now, you know, I fast forward five, six months and I'm there for my daughter in the morning. I'm picking her up from, you know, play group in the afternoon and I'm, I'm more productive than I've ever have been. I don't really care about the money so much, but I'm there for my daughter more because of your book, you know? And you know, I'm just like, that just crushed me. Yeah. When he said that to me as a father, I started crying in this conference center. We're hugging each other, two grown men. We've only just met each other five minutes ago and we're we're in this embrace and we're crying and everything. That was the moment for me that I said to myself, if I never sell another copy of this book, it was still worthwhile. That is a beautiful story and a great segue into this next book uh, and your motive for that. So this one, Rise of the Youpreneur, the definitive guide to becoming the go-to leader in your industry and building a future proof business. Now you coined and you've been using that term for a long time, youpreneur, to describe mm-hmm. the rise of the personal brand entrepreneur and a new business model that very few people uh, realize. And, and so let's go back. I know it's cliche, the elevator pitch, but give us what's the essence. What's the essence that you, okay, so I, I'm, I'm in your target market. What's the essence? What do you want me to get out of this book? I, I want you to understand that the world genuinely does need you, your personality, your expertise, and the effect that you can have on it because of the people that you help. Um, We serve first and we sell later. We do become people's favorites. Um, I think it's very, very important. And I think that when you are front and center in your business as a youpreneur is, uh, it's important to understand that people that follow you, that admire you, that look up to you, that buy from you. If you do things right, as your varying interests move and pivot, as you get older and you go through certain parts of your life, if you do this in the right way and you focus on what I call P2P relationships, that's people to people, not B2B or B2C, but P2P, if you do that, these hardcore raving fans slash loyal customers will follow you no matter what different areas of your career you want to you want to pursue um hence the fact that you will become future proof mm-hmm. um but really you know at the very core of what a youpreneur is it's somebody who is building a business based around them their expertise the people that they want to serve it's people like coaches and consultants and authors and speakers and bloggers and podcasters and YouTubers and live streamers and anybody really building a business based around how they can help other people one-on-one, one-to-many, whatever way you want to look at it. And so, you know, the book is actually broken up into three main sections. It's, it's building, marketing, 
and monetizing mm-hmm. your personal brand into a genuine business model. So for example, someone like yourself, although you might pick up the book and read through the building section, you're a hop and a skip ahead of a lot of people who might just be starting out, Kevin. You know, you, People know who you are. You've got a personal brand built up already, ultimately. Um, so you can skip the first 75 pages. I won't hold it against you. Go straight to, <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> go straight to the second okay. section. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So it, it's, it's, you know, this book, actually, I didn't plan on writing this book. I'll tell you the story as to how we came about this to have this book um i i launched in 2015 i launched youpreneur.com which is an online community um and i remember talking to your dad actually about this just as i was launching it um it's an online community for personal brand entrepreneurs like the career people that i've just mentioned um and in mid 2016 we did a content audit on the inside of our learning library Because I had noticed that although the forums, our private forums, were very active and people were logging in all the time, they weren't consuming the content as much as I wanted them to or as much as I really thought that they would be. But they were in there talking and brainstorming, which was great. So I wasn't complaining, but I wanted to realize why this incredible workshop that I had put together on how to you know, um, create and market viral blog posts, for example. I want to know why that wasn't being consumed yeah. as much. And we, you know, we surveyed our audience, we did the content audit, and we realized actually there were a lot of gaps in the learning library. So people were getting lost mm. and they didn't know where to start. They didn't know what to do next. So we, we did this audit and we, we had a huge brainstorming session right here in this office. And on the other side of this camera, uh, and uh, right in front of me is a huge whiteboard. It's probably seven foot, maybe eight foot wide by five or six foot um, tall. And we spent a good, good part of an afternoon going through all of the different gaps in the content library and what we, were, what we needed to create to fill up those gaps and how we were going to do it. And I don't know whether you've ever seen that movie with Russell Crowe, A Beautiful Mind. Oh, yes. Where, you know, like where the equations kind of come out from yeah. the chalkboard and from the windows and everything. It was like one of those moments. I know it sounds maybe a little bit salesman-y there, but honestly... That's exactly what happened to me. At the end of that session, I was looking at the whiteboards. Two of my team members were kind of just taking notes and photos of the whiteboard. And we do that. We, we take photos of whiteboards in our meetings and we post them up into our Slack groups so we can kind of keep track of them and things like that. And they were doing all that. And I was looking at the whiteboard and I was thinking to myself, oh, wait a minute. I've just noticed something. This is actually three very distinct areas here, building. And then there's all this marketing stuff. And then there's everything to do with monetizing and making money from it. We should put this into these three main sections. Like that will, no matter when they turn up in the community for the first time, no matter when they join, they'll know which section to start from mm-hmm. immediately based on those three words. And that was actually what created the Youpreneur Roadmap, which is what the book is built on and that build, market, monetize roadmap. And then, like I said, once we kind of looked at it, I looked back and we had cleaned things up inside of the community. We redesigned things a little bit so that it was easier to follow. And the feedback was unbelievable. People started consuming the content. They started talking about it in the forums. Uh, and I realized that there and then that was a book just ready and waiting to be written. And uh, that's exactly where the book was born. 
So let me, let me ask about that. As you talked before, when you had thought about writing a book and you, you know, you've been in sales, but you didn't feel like the world needed another sales book, at least not by Chris Ducker. Obviously there are other, there's other content out there on small business on being an entrepreneur, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sensing. So what in it, in this book, did you feel like there's, there's a void or there's a misperception or there's something that people aren't getting that I want to impart to them uh, in this book? What is that? That you can make money from it, plain and simple. That, okay. That's really what it is. Um, you know, the word or the term personal brand has been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. And in fact, actually, I've done a few interviews over the last couple of weeks to talk about the book with other podcasters. Um, and one question that a few people have asked, well, like, you know, is this a new thing? How long has this been around for? I'm like, you don't understand. Personal branding has been around for decades for a long, 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 long time. And I've actually used Zig on a number of occasions as the perfect walking, talking example of the personal brand personified. Because here we are all these years after his passing, and we're still talking about him and how great he is and how great his words were and what he did to help people. Mm -hmm. This is exactly what the personal brand is. Yes, he made money from his personal brand as well, but he did it by serving first and selling later and that's the underlining overall you know message there is that you can make money from your relationships from your personality from your experience if you just do it the right way you don't have to be one of these fast talking you know instagram or youtube stars to make money you do it the right way by helping people by providing solutions to people's problems and if you provide a solution to a problem in the right way for the right reasons to the right people, then you get blessed by being able to put a price tag on it, plain and simple. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, I'm a big believer that, that if you are the kind of person that has a voice, that wants that voice to be heard, that you know, wants um, to inspire and motivate and help other people take action, then this is a great business model. But it, you know, you've got to do it the right way. You've, you've got to focus on the relationships and the serving element before the money. The money will come. All you need to do is just provide all-out value all the time. Okay, so you in there, you talked about doing things the right way, serving people, and you mentioned you don't have to be a you know an Instagram star or or this or that. So on that, you also have a quote that says, uh, the best way to become a youpreneur is to really be you 120% of the time. There's no room for smoke and mirrors. There's no funny games to be played. You've got to be you all of the time. I, I, I like that statement so much because I'm very aware and we joke about it a good bit that people have this perception of what an entrepreneur is. And it's because they are generally, my take is it on, on it is they're generally hearing from the segment of entrepreneurs who are uh, talkers, people like us, we're the ones who are out here. The ones that are not on a microphone are the ones over there that just don't care to be. That's not part of their personal stick, mm-hmm. not part of their business model. And they're doing great business. So uh, I, I say that to when you say that the way to be an entrepreneur is to be a youpreneur is to be a hundred percent, one hundred twenty percent you all the time. Do you say that some in some aspects to advocate that entrepreneurship can accommodate? anyone, any personality type and, and, and being authentic within that. 
that style. Absolutely, without a doubt. Whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, or uh, you know, an introverted extrovert, whatever you want to call it, yeah. I I really believe genuinely that if you have the drive to want to build a business, to want to carve out your own little bit of legacy for your children or yourself or whatever the case may be, if you have the drive to want to help people, if you have the drive to want to inspire people if you want to ha- if you have the drive to genuinely want to leave your mark on the world then you should absolutely what i call what, what i the, the phrase i use all the time is you've got to chase it down mm-hmm. it's not going to fall in your lap like i don't know whether you've ever seen uh, the, the documentary series planet earth on on uh, with with uh, sir richard Attenborough. yes unbelievable documentary series yes. oh my gosh i will never tire of watching that um, and it inspired me actually via Netflix uh, to look around and look at other things. And just recently, there was um, another documentary series that came out by the same people who made that uh, Savage. Oh, good gosh. The name is escaping me now. It was about following a pack of lions okay. um, and, and all this stuff. But the it was a, a British guy who was um, narrating all the best narrators are British, I think, aren't they? I think they are. Anyway, it sounds um, like <laughs> it. it sounds, well, you just sound smarter. I mean, you know, I know. It's, it's just <laughs> we're a, not all Morgan Freeman. I think Morgan Freeman fact. is pretty, pretty good. Well, but no, but th- there was this, this, this new series and it's all about these lions. And I don't know whether you've ever seen a lion chasing down its prey in hd and super slow-mo it is the scariest thing you'll ever see in your life the fire in their eyes the teeth the so i mean it is the scariest thing i've ever seen in my life watching this series and i'm like oh man i'm gonna chase it down every day i'm chasing it down just like that lion was chasing down yeah. that gazelle yeah. and so I, I'm all about the chasing it down thing. And I think that if you're like that and you understand and appreciate the fact that it's not going to fall in your lap and that you do have to chase it down, but you do it in the right way with feelings, with passion, with emotion, people will naturally become attracted to you. I call it marketing like a magnet. You attract the best, but at the very, very same time, you repel the rest. Right, so you attract the people that you are all about, that you know you can inspire and help the most. But at the same time, it's okay for not everybody to like you. It's okay to repel some of the rest away at the same time. And this all actually came to fruition for me. The whole thing happened last November in London. We held the inaugural Upreneur Summit at the Queen Elizabeth Convention Center, straight across the road from Westminster Abbey in my hometown of London. And I'd always dreamt of holding a big business conference in my, in my hometown. And, you know, I rented the venue, quite frankly. There's no other venue in the city of London that could do it. And we had these beautiful Union Jack Upreneur uh, 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 Summit flags flying outside and everything. And right at the end of, of the conference, at the end of our second day, and I was looking out to over 400 people in the audience. We'd sold out three months before the event even wow. took place. Um, I have never lost it on stage. I've never choked up on stage. And I've been on God knows how many stages around the world. I've never, ever lost it until at the very end of this event where I choked up and I was looking out through this audience and I realized this is what it feels like. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to inspire people 
like these guys right here. And it kind of got to me. I had to compose myself a little bit. Kind of, you know, you choke it, you choke it back a little bit, and and then you crack some, you know, cheesy joke that only half the audience sounds, you know, finds funny. But you get through it, you know what I mean? And and that's exactly what happened. But I had people coming up to me as they were leaving the venue, saying that it was obvious that I just cared. Quite frankly, that's why that happened. And there was one guy; his name was Mark from Belgium. All these little moments, you know, the guy at the bookstore, uh, the the conference book signing in New York. This guy in in London, his name is Mark from Belgium. He came back. He came up to me after, just as everybody was leaving, and he said, "Chris, I want you to know something." He said to me, "The world gave up on me a few years ago." But since I found you and started following your work, you made me believe that the world needs me. So, you know, screw the world. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do things my way, just like you say we should. And the world's going to be a better place for it. I wanted you to know that. And I'm just like, this is it. These are the kind of guys that get it. These are the youpreneurs. And these are the people I've written the book for and I do everything for now, you know? Well... I am grateful. And you mentioned attracting the people that you can help the most right here. This Ziegler audience, tens of thousands of people need this message. I am grateful to my, uh, to my dad for getting to with Mark Tim, I believe, and saying, you guys need to get Mark on here because the message, the heart of, of youpreneur and even your story, just in serving other people, that's what Ziggler's about. This is the kind of motivation that we, we all need the encouragement that lifts us up. It is Zig Ziggler. Uh, Chris, thank you, man. Thank you for sharing your story, your heart, and for doing what you do to bring this message to us because uh, we need it. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me on. And it's a real pleasure to do what I do every day. I'm blessed to be in a position to do it. Well, folks, that was just a joy. I don't think you can listen to the interview without smiling a a lot. Again, go now to youpreneur.com dot com slash book that's you y-o-u-p-r-e-n-e-u-r dot com slash book where you can get his book rise of the youpreneur the definitive guide to becoming the go-to leader in your industry and building a future proof business he's got a couple packages there where you get a bunch of great uh, bonuses along with the book well coming up in show 537 we go behind the scenes with Chris, follow the seven spokes in the Ziggler wheel of life. And we find out what Chris struggles with and the healthy habits he employs to overcome and to succeed. Well, some of the highlights, he is one of the few Brits. He thinks he doesn't actually like football. Now that's what we call soccer here. Uh, he's an NBA fan, Boston Celtics specifically. Uh, he doesn't like exercise but he does it to be around a long time for his kids, including yoga that he does with his wife, who's a teacher. He reads to his kids every night, makes pancakes and bacon for them every Saturday, which it just so happens on the funky time zone. As I was talking with him on Friday night, it was his Saturday morning. And right after the show, that's what he went to do. He believes in creating recurring moments and lessons with his kids and his family. When asked about his best mental exercise, he said it's just getting enough sleep and and not having the brain fog. Uh, And a great tip I got from him is he doesn't look at his email till noon. He saves the morning for creative work, which, man, that's when I feel the most creative. But I often do get into my emails. I think I'm going to try it. His best career advice 
And I think this is great advice for life, as anyone listening to Ziegler would understand, is understanding the importance of relationships and that people should be treasured, not used. Guys, this is a gem of a show. Enjoy it immensely, this one and the one coming up. Till then, thank you for walking with me as we inspire our true performance together.